0: when I see that drone footage on Instagram and I think, Jesus, this guy already knows how to use it. I almost lost it in a tree. (laughs) It cut my hand when I tried to grab it and like, I didn't realize how fast the blades were going.
1: Yeah. I cut my finger. It bled all over the place. And I was like, and I, and I hit a tree as well.
0: But you kept going, but somehow like you were navigating through city streets where I'm like, how high is this? I mean, how's he doing this? It's like, looks like it's going right down the middle. Look at this park! New drone, who dis?
1: Hey everybody, welcome to the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. Our guest today is none other than Ollie Farinakian. He's one of the founders of the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. He's also the founder and owner of the People's Improv Theater, which has uh, several spaces in New York City and in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. The Pit, as it's known here in New York, has been the home for many up-and-coming improv, sketch, stand-up comedian, for the last almost 20 years now. He's made dozens of appearances in TV shows and movies, including 30 Rock, Law & Order, Louie, Delocated, and Late Night with Conan O'Brien. He was also a writer for Saturday Night Live back in the 99-2000 season. We're gonna talk about all that stuff We're going to talk about the balance between being a theater artist and also a theater owner, and in particular, what it's like right now when there is no theater here in New York City. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our talk with Ali Farnakian on the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. The following podcast is in no way related to Centralia, Pennsylvania. And now, direct from New York City, an island off the coast of America, it's the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. You've always been a pie in the sky dreamer.
0: I think I just got to write down, put a book together because, you know, we're all going to die with the ghosts of our unfinished work and ideas around us. And we're we're lying there in that bed, and they're like, remember me? I was a cereal shack. Remember me? (laughs) Do you remember me? I was the potato chip factory where it's nothing but potato chips and dips and soda. You never built me. Mm. But it's Mm. like, I also don't know if I want to spend my time and energy now, you know, getting a potato chip buffet off the ground. You know. Yeah, you got to pick and choose. I mean, imagine if you went to New York City, Times Square, there was a place that had, you know, it was a buffet. And you got 50 to 100 kinds of chips. Mm-hmm. You've got maybe 25 to 50 kinds of dips. You've mm. got unlimited soda fountain. You've got these trays mm-hmm. with different compartments. And, you know, maybe it's 1999 and you go in there and, you know, it's one and done. But phew, you did 100 to 1,000 people a day who just came to the potato chip factory.
1: I see you as a guy who dives in. Like my view of you, which is an outsider's view, is that you get a, you get an inspiration, you get a hair in your, what's it? You get a wild hair? I don't know the expression. And you're like, I'm gonna do this thing and you go all in. And I notice it because I don't have that impulse. I have a lot of ideas and I immediately judge them. You know, I, I put my horse blinders on and I'm like, that's not towards my ultimate goal, which is undefined. So so I see that in you. I see you as a guy who's like, inspiration has struck. I'm going for it. Has that changed?
0: It has in bricks and mortar. I'm just like, you know, I've had I had five bricks and mortar spaces that we were running, you know, right. March first, pre-COVID. And right. now I'm approaching one year of not being allowed to open, you know, and I and I joke about how Ten years down the line when they have campfires and they sit around and go, let's play a game of what the worst COVID businesses could have been. (laughs) Um, um, What about a rehearsal space where people are like in a 20 by 20 room singing and spitting and sweating on each other? Uh, Yeah, yeah, I got one. I got one. What about improv singing where you got pianos and people are spitting and singing at each other? And, you know, what about a bar where they play giant Jenga?
1: (laughs) Nobody knew. Nobody (laughs) knew it was coming. Nobody knew it was coming. So, yeah, so I guess that's, uh, I mean, that's heavy. That's really heavy. How are you dealing with it?
0: Well, I mean, it's uncharted territory. Every day is different. Every landlord is different. You know, we already surrendered Simple Studios. Yeah. You know, the, the other, you know, the one space in Chapel Hill and the three remaining in New York have still not been open. And, you know, no president, no governor, no mayor has come to our aid, but again, you got to stay positive and go, all right, I'm not one of the close to 450,000 who have died and haven't yeah. done a COVID funeral arrangement. All right. It's just kind of figuring out like what's next. You know, our online classes, we've been doing that. That's, you know, um, you know. luckily we got into that by by late March, we had already had a platform. Hmm. But it's basically a startup now. Again, it's like 2.0. um Yeah. So that's why it's like these ideas that, you know, you're right, in a pre-COVID world, that's what Chapel Hill was. Chapel Hill was probably diving into the deep end without a lot of thought, because I felt like I had the support of the businesses in New York to buoy it. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, of a certain age where I'm like, here's my chance to help my college town and my home state. You consider yourself like a Southern boy? Well, I I like, you know, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm an adopted son of North Carolina. I arrived there when I was around seven. Formative language years were in Connecticut, which is why, unless I'm down there, I usually don't have a Southern accent. But when I'm down there, it does start to, you know, appear. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, I showed up there uh, the summer before my third grade in a small small country town called Danbury, population 150, where we just played a lot of make-believe. There was a lot of fishing by the river. There was a lot of running around the woods looking for Sasquatch, riding motorcycles, shooting <laughs> bows and arrows. But I remember like, you know, when I was a kid, we'd run around and we would just play army, you know. Mm. And um, and then at one point I was on the show Delocated, thanks to my friend John Glazer. And I was mm. running around the woods with a gun looking for him playing army. And I was like, had this moment of epiphany where it's like, I did it. I did it. This thing that I <laughs> this thing I was yeah. doing as a third grader running around the woods, playing army, you know, civil war, yeah. jumping behind stuff. and then all of a sudden, here I was. I was doing it. I was getting paid to, you know, play army. You did the homework, I guess. I guess. you know, how did you discover
1: comedy and improv? were Were you like watching comedy as a kid?
0: Yeah. I mean, I loved comedy. I remember one of the first films I saw was Spies with Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland. You know, you really have to look it up on IMDb. And, you know, I love the, uh, the Pink Panther films. I loved those, you know, um, and then Saturday Night Live since probably the very first episodes, I loved that. And, um, you know, that's what, you know, made me love comedy. Uh, you know, probably Chaplin and Carlin and Pryor and, you know, um, Bob and Ted's Excellent Adventure and uh, Cheech and Chong. And, you know, I remember getting the cassette tapes for those and putting them in this large tape recorder and putting it in this down vest I had and taking it to like the opera. And I was listening to like, you know, Cheech and Chong while the opera (laughs) or something like that. That's great. And, you
1: know. Was there a moment when you knew that like you wanted to be part of that world? Was it a slow evolution or was there something you listened to where you're like, I want, I want in.
0: Well, it's funny because I'm trying to put my affairs in order, you know, kind of organize and clean closets and rooms and spaces. And I came across this piece of yellow notepad paper from the night I had like the epiphany in Christmas Eve of 89, watching SNL, where I was like, I want to write for this show at some point in my life. Mm. I don't, I don't know why I had the thought, but it's because I was going to be graduating fifth year, senior, whatever I thought I was going to do hadn't panned out. And it was like the clock was ticking. I had one semester left, you know, Mm. or already being a fifth year senior was probably pushing it in the world that I came from.
1: What were you planning to be before that?
0: Well, I mean, I went to Carolina with the thoughts of like, I guess I'm going to be a doctor. And, you know, the joke, my, the stand-up joke is I wanted to get a JD, MD, MBA, PhD in pharmacology. And five years (laughs) later, I settled for a BA in psych, you know, (laughs) yeah. So, you know, I thought I wanted to be a doctor on account of my dad and St. Elsewhere and MASH. And then I got there and I was like, Jesus, I don't have the the work ethic. I don't have the stamina. I don't have the study habits, you know. Mm. And, and I got into the, you know, the Animal House life and Blues Brothers. And, you know, I found out I was able to drink. And, you know, I just, you know, I was young too. And I went to Carolina. And so I guess I could always, you know... I had the ability to make people laugh if there were funny people around and people who wanted to laugh, but I could also be serious and have some kind of gravitas. But if there were people who were like, you know, they were goers, they wanted to, you know, do bits at any level, I've always been able to be like, oh, okay, you want to be funny and play. Let's do it. Um, But I found and, and that SNL, piece of paper. I, I guess
1: yeah. SNL was like... um. a a path that made that sort of having fun with your friends and making people laugh, like a legitimate possible career. Like, did you have an awareness that people got paid to be funny?
0: No, no, that didn't cross my mind. I mean, what crossed my mind is like, here's this show, here's this guy, John Belushi, who's a darker looking dude with black curly hair. And Mm -hmm. he was like one of the few people who looked like I looked. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was also not something I ever thought was a possibility. So I never had that thought of wanting even when I you know went to Chicago to study at the Second City with Michael McCarthy to take his sketch writing class rest in peace Michael I uh, you know I wasn't even like I'm not a performer I'm just a writer you know mm. and then I kind of like you know heard about Dell and Sharna and saw what they were doing and saw Blue Velveeta at the Second City main stage in this thing called the Southern Comfort Comedy Challenge And I kind of tricked myself into saying, you know what? Maybe I'll just take an improv class just to get more writing ideas. And then, you know, February 1st of 91, I took my very first class with Sharna at the School Street space in Chicago. Uh, Ian Roberts was in my class, we became friends. And then that's how it began. And as soon as I did it, it was like, it felt like breathing. Like I was almost more comfortable on stage than I was off stage. Oh yeah. I'm the exact same way. And then playing, you know, make-believe was something that came natural to me because I did so much of it in that small country town where I didn't even know what I was doing, but that's what we were doing. Mm -hmm. You know, we were like, over here, jump, Sasquatch, get him! you know?
1: Right, right, I think, I mean, as a teacher, I often just say it out loud, you know, your job as an improviser is to reconnect with that childhood sense of imagination and play. That's all it is, is, is reawakening something that's already in you giving yourself permission to not be an adult for a little while.
0: Yeah. The story I use when I teach is the story of the man who teaches art in college and his daughter says, what do you do for a living, dad? And he says, well, I teach people how to paint and draw. And she says, you mean they forget? Mm. Uh, and so I, I liken the same that with improv, you know, what do you do for a living? I help people, you know, play make believe and, you know, uh, pretend. And you mean they forget? Yeah. I mean, I think it's,
1: you know, it's funny we're saying pretend, but it's also sort of like a sense of real play because there's fake play and there's real genuine play that kind of, you know, play where you're not aware of the fact that you're playing. Like when you're a kid, you're just playing, you know, you're not following certain rules to play. You're just playing.
0: You know, the thing that always frustrated me is whenever I stepped into a room in one of the spaces and watched, I just saw people fake fighting you know, bad fake Mm -hmm. fighting. And I was just like, Mm -hmm. no wire hangers, you know, um, (laughs) no fake fighting, you know, because it's like, when we did make believe in North Carolina, we were on the same team, like we were playing army, it was like we were two people in the same army unit, jumping over, you know, hills, and we were working together. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think there's this disconnect where people think, oh, comedy is about fighting. And I'm like, no, drama is about conflict. Comedy is about connecting, especially improvisational comedy. Now situational comedy, it's been choreographed. It's a choreographed fight. Sketch comedy, again, a choreographed fight. It's different. But if you want to do improvisational comedy and you get up there and you start fake fighting, it's like, I mean, especially now walking around New York City, there is so much drama on the streets, so much like yeah. yelling and fake fighting and arguing and street theater that it's like, I don't want to see this. I want to see people, because an improv scene is probably two to three minutes long in long form improvisation. Um, yeah. It's like, it's a waste to, to spend that time fake fighting.
1: Right. Would you prefer real fighting or no fighting?
0: Ultimately, the goal is to get to what is this really about as quickly as you can. So if there's a fight that happens, you know, whether it be fake or real or melodrama, I would prefer like, okay, if that's what you need to use as an entry point into a scene, because you think every scene has to start with a conflict. Otherwise, what are we going to do? Scenes have to start with fights or what are we going to do? then at least have somebody be the person to go hey what's this really about you know and if it's going to be one of those things where it's like i want to break up at least have one person go awesome i didn't know how to say it but thank you me yeah. too as opposed yeah. to no don't because i think it comes from citizen kane and i want to destroy a room and i want to fight and i want to art. you know and they've seen movies where these people they idolize are fighting and destroying rooms and having these scenes, Wild West. I'm like, Mm -hmm. but that's acting. That's a drama. That's choreographed. That's planned out. So, you know, I'd prefer to see people work together.
1: Yeah, I always tell my students that, uh, you know, the improvisers can never be in conflict. The characters are allowed to be in conflict. We need some level of conflict in 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 our storytelling. But I think the fighting, the fake fighting, you call it, is about, um, you know, it's a way for an improviser to take control of a scene because it's it's pretty scary to be out there on stage and not know what's happening next, especially for new improvisers. And a a fake fight or argument is, you know, an easy thing to jump into as opposed to having to do the hard work of really diving in. You You ask that question. And I think you're one of these guys that asks the question a lot on stage and off about what is this really about?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and look, and I, and look, when I'm, when I teach a lot of entry classes or when I teach classes and the people start out with that level and I've taught, you know, I've taught from young kids to high school kids to, you know, folks over 80, it, it's a go to default mode of what people think improv is. I will start a fight. I'll get into a fight, you know? Yeah. And yeah. And it's okay, because it's like, okay, it's all you know. That's what you think improv is. And there's also a fear, like, if we don't fight, then what are we going to do? Is every scene going to be positive and win-win? It's like, I don't know, but I'd rather not see you just fake fight about something. And it only takes one person to go, hey, time out. What's this about? Yeah, Yeah, dive in. When the person says, I took all the money in the bank and I left, and they're like, awesome, that money was weighing me down. Right,
1: like making the unexpected positive choice versus the uh, argumentative choice. So I just want to you know, ask real quick, because you're an improviser and you're a writer, how did you get to the point of starting The Pit?
0: Well, I would, you know, I would say I was of a certain age at the time, I was probably 32 or 33. And for me, that was always a big deal age because of Belushi, Farley, Bruce Lee, Jesus, you know, Mm -hmm. where it was like the age of reckoning. And I was like, Oh, I'm about to be 33. It was post 9-11. So after 9-11, there was more of a sense of like, what am I going to do with my life? How am I going to help New York City? And look, I felt like I was a big fish in a small pond in the theater I was a founding member of in New York. I had one key which I liked because, you know, in the movie Sex Lies in Videotape, James Spader has one key. And then when he moves in with Andy McDowell and her husband, she gives him another key to the guest house. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. I just I just want my one key to my Mustang. She's like, well, you need a key to this guest house. So I had one key. I had bought a tiny two bedroom with my SNL money and I was teaching, you know, um, and performing uh, at UCB. And it was post nine eleven, and it just felt like, you know, it was time to move on and there was only so much I could do there. And, you know, without getting into too much of like the the Genesis point, um, it was time. And uh, there was a space for rent at 154 West 29th Street and other people who were like-minded. And, you know, I uh, reached out to the, the sign in the window and then he didn't call me back. And then more stuff happened uh, that I was like, I, I got to get out of here. It's time. And uh, I called back because of Vince Lombardi had four rules he coached by, hard work, second effort, loyalty, and love. And I was like, have I put in the second effort with the space? In my mind, I just thought I called, I left a message. This guy could tell I'm not real. I've never rented a space. Mm -hmm. And... um, The second time I called back, he called me back. He said, Ali, I'm sorry, this is George. Uh, I've been busy, but let's meet. And I was like, oh, okay. And in the interim, I had done a law and order where I played a brown dude attorney, uh, Anwar Mm -hmm. Mohammed, defending an American Taliban white kid. So 9-11 gave me the law and order gig that made the money that I could start the first pit.
1: Wow. So. It's that's a, an upside to 9-11 yeah not to is, be dark
0: no but i mean if it weren't for 9-11 i don't think i would have been cast as a guest lead opposite sam waterston and even i got lucky because i beat out other people every brown dude on the east coast wanted this role
1: mm-hmm. or
0: was auditioning for it
1: probably because it's the only role that anyone yeah. would consider them for
0: yeah i mean at that time sure it was a brown dude anwar muhammad an attorney opposite Sam Waterson, guest lead. So sure, every agent was probably trying to get people. To, and I auditioned like four times, which was like unheard mm. of. Usually it's like once in a callback. But for whatever yeah. reason, it was a big enough role to them. And again, it's just like, I guess I got lucky and I got the role, but it gave me the money I needed to um, to basically be able to sign that lease at the original pit uh, back in 2002.
1: And did you have any goals in mind when you started the pit? Like, I want this to be here forever. Or you were just like the next three years, I'm going to do this.
0: No, no, I didn't even, I didn't even, I wasn't even leaving, uh, the theater. I was a founding member of to start a theater. I was just going to leave and find a loft space that I could teach sketch writing and improv. And that's it. I wasn't even looking to be like a theater. Uh, I was just looking to teach more classes. And I kind of could only teach a certain amount there because they had so many classes. So, you know, that's kind of the reason I did it. And I really, it was harder to get performance spots. And, you know, the original group of us that was doing, you know, ASCAT had grown to being like a lot of people doing it. And -hmm. it just like, it felt like it was time. I'd done what I could. And, you know, at a certain point, you know, you got to put out a shingle for yourself. If that's, you know, again, not everybody like needs to start a business. It's not for everybody. For some people, they should just, you know, do what they do and be part of a good team because it does take a lot of mental energy. Uh, But when I Did you ever
1: resent, did you ever resent like having to find that mental energy to be a businessman while still trying to be a performer and teacher?
0: I don't know if I would say resent it, but. You know what this time has shown me is i spent a lot of time creating opportunities and stages and places for other people and mm-hmm. i think i think i put my own desire to act and perform and create kind of on a back burner and also mm-hmm. to some degree because of the times you know since 2017 there was a uh, I, maybe not a fear but a trepidation of saying something in an improv scene or stand-up where people would be like did you hear what he said he's the owner of the pit he made this joke you know right
1: right the the birth of cancel culture
0: uh, yes the birth of cancel culture and then when you're the tip of the spear when you're someone who's the you know ostensibly the person who runs the spaces you become their de facto trump and they're like we Mm -hmm. can't get to trump but we can get to this dude what did he do what did he say you know right and look eighty percent of the people At the pit, 90% amazing, wonderful people still think, you know, still say stuff. 10% caused me a lot of challenges, you know, Mm. put the fact that they didn't get what they wanted out of life or what they, you know, wanted to accomplish on my shoulders. Like it was my fault. Like I'm some gatekeeper. It's like, I'm, I'm a property manager. I oversee, I, I look at property and I take care of it so people can do it. Yeah. So again, I never set out when I started the pit to even have a theater, but that first space we saw, 154 West 29th, when I walked in to look at it the first time was me and George, um, the landlord, it had risers. And I was like, oh, this is a theater space. I thought it was just an empty loft. Oh, really? Yeah. You I didn't, didn't
1: know it was the Currican.
0: No, I didn't know it was the Currican Theater. I didn't know anything about it. The sign in the window actually said theater slash assembly hall for rent. And I was <laughs> I was more intrigued by the assembly hall part of it than the theater yeah. part. I was like, Yeah, you could hall. start
1: a, a, a trade union or
0: I was like, ah, oh, lefty and me, you know, a little... Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, Your own like, Tammany Hall. Yeah, I thought this could be something, you know. And um, so those risers are what made me think oh this is also a performance space mm. and then you know i signed the lease and i jumped into the deep end and you know people how long was the first up.
1: how long was the first lease for
0: five years five, five years so
1: you knew when you signed this was a five-year thing or did you think i can get out of it if i need to
0: no i just thought what well, i did say to him i was like five years it's like uh i was thinking more like a year or two he goes ali if this works out you're gonna want more than five years trust me and wow. i said oh, okay i guess 5 years oh my god cuz i you know i'm probably also someone who doesn't like commitment and, do- and wants to be get out and wants to you know doesn't want to tie things up
1: mm-hmm.
0: but it was the rent you know in the beginning it was doable it was like 3 a month for the first year 3300 for 2 and 3 36 for 4 and 5 the security deposit was 6 you know i did have Oof. to use his brother in law as the architect. So I had to give him two because it wasn't a theater. It had to be rezoned. But by the time everything was done, I had really no money. So I had to go down to Kmart and buy chairs. I had to go to the Mac store and start a kind of a credit line to get a laptop. And, Hmm. you know, but then things started happening that I didn't really know why. Like all of a sudden, one day we were doing a cleaning day, cleaning and organizing. And Ptolemy and Ptolemy Slocum and Kurt Bronner showed up with a little gift of like a, I don't know, some kind of furry cat or something. And I thought people were just coming by to say hello, but I didn't really realize that they were coming by to say, hey, man, I'd love to be a part of this, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there was this whole group of people who I think hadn't found a toehold into the UCB world or Second City world or... Mm -hmm you know, Chicago city limits world. And they, you know, I guess I was their teacher at one point. They'd taken a sketch writing class from me. They'd taken an improv class. They'd seen me in ASCAT and they wanted to be a part of something. And we just got lucky with this amazing, you know, level of both performance talent and teaching talent and community that, you know, and it was a small space and it was doable. And I was lucky at the time because I was making enough money off of, you know, Conan gigs and commercials and, you know, law and orders that I didn't need to pull anything for the first three years. Wow. So, so, you know, and that was, we stayed there for eight years. The last three years was month to month and nobody knew that but me and my general manager because he wouldn't sign hmm. another lease because the building needed sprinklers. And so, hmm you know, I was like, well, I can't put in sprinklers without a lease. And he was like, well, put in sprinklers and then I'll give you a lease. And I was like, yeah, I can't do that. I can't, you know, I don't have the money. And if, even if I could find a way to borrow the money, I can't build something in your space. That's going to make it harder for me to negotiate against you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, the rest. And
1: when, of- when you're in the middle of a negotiation like that, are you thinking I just need to get on stage and improvise?
0: No, no. I mean, those things are, you know, with the improv and the acting, they're always, to me, really of the moment. You know, I'm never, you know, I'm never thinking about it until I'm kind of doing it. Hmm. You know, if I have a show that night, sure. Am I, or, you know, was I excited about the show, especially at a different time in my life when performance opportunities weren't as plentiful and it was a big deal to be like, I get to do a show at I.O. tonight, you know? Yeah. Uh, It was more something to look forward to, but... You know, I, it, it, it is really the story of throwing the frog in boiling water and it jumps out and you put the frog in warm water and turn it up to boiling and it stays there until it dies. Yeah. And and that <laughs> and that's for me what I compared what I did to, you know, I was not no one yeah. threw me into five spaces in two states. Right. You know, I had a tiny, manageable 2,500 square foot black box theater with an art gallery, and genuinely at that time no bar you know so i didn't have to deal with bar drama Mm -hmm. you know and you know eventually we got a beer and wine license because my gm at the time said look i'd love to have a glass of wine after a show i'll do all the work all you have to do is sign the papers and i was like okay but i knew what alcohol would do but you know okay people wanted it and they were going to other places to have it anyway Right, So that's right. what started the first beer and wine license at that pit. But people didn't stay there and drink. They, you know, they had a drink or two. They saw a show. There wasn't a lot of hanging out, except for like when we yeah. had our big parties. And then they went to the bars on 7th Avenue. You yeah. Know, and they dealt with whatever, you know, um, issues they might have had. Yeah. Um, you know, the big thing that happened for me, you know, that really was the thing that turned it is... That the tiny two bedroom I bought using my SNL money um, before our second daughter was born, my wife said, I can't live in a walk up with two. Um, we gotta leave here. I said, okay. So we ended up selling it, and it was at the top of the market back in, I think, around 2008 or something, 2008 or 10, somewhere around then. And then I got this big bag of money from the sale because of mm-hmm. the market. And then I used that money to start Simple Studios. Um, that was the second one. And that's just because the pit was right beside this building called the India building. And the landlord, who I didn't know at the time, was next door. And I'd see him outside and we would talk, but I didn't really know who he was. We just always got along very well and were very friendly. And then at some point I found out he was a landlord, had space. And I said, well, if you ever got any space, you know, I'd love to be able to have some rooms for classes because we were spending so much money at Ripley Greer, Cap 21, Champions, Pearl, and just being treated like Poorly, because those places right. weren't built for improv. They're like we just stepped into the luck of improv and acting. We're right. actually places that want to do musical theater and Broadway stuff.
1: Right. And you're you're hosting improv classes nightly. How many classes do you think?
0: Prior to Simple Studios, I would say we were probably doing five, six classes on a on a big night, you know. Right. Um It's a lot of space to rent. Yeah, but I was writing checks every like week or two weeks or whatever to these other places and they were getting big. And I just was like, Jesus, I mean, I'm writing these checks to these other people and they're not even treating us with the appreciation and respect. Right. And I was just like, and that's when the epiphany came in of like, I should start looking for a space for our classes. And Mm -hmm. that landlord had this second floor. And again, it was at a time in the market where a 10,000 square foot space like now is going to be hard to rent. And um, I had the money from the sale of the home. And, um, you know, I don't know. I guess I was just more willing to take these risks because whatever money I spent, I had 80, 80 grand in security deposit at Simple Studios from the sale of the home, mm. uh, and that's gone. That, that, you know, they kept that. Wow. So they were like, sorry, that's, but every landlord is gonna keep every security deposit. So the security deposit I put in at the pit, the security deposit I put in at every location, they're gone. And I had to give them money to be able to walk away. So simple studios, you know, probably over a hundred just to walk away. And my attorney would tell you, you got lucky. You know, they very wow. easily could have come after you personally, and you know, they could have said, we want the back rent, and you're you're responsible for all rent moving forward. But I said, look, I don't have it, and if you want to bankrupt me, you can. But I just can't pay. And you know, simple at the end was forty grand a month. Um, and again, it's still, it's 10,000 square feet of space to keep clean, to keep organized. And, you know, it's just, it's challenging, you know. Right. When I totally
1: get the frog in the boiling water metaphor oh, yeah. at this point. Oh, yeah.
0: It's just like, and it was just, like I said, I was just running around, um, just making but, sure ACs worked and, you know. Yeah. And this
1: is, this is, I mean, it's a long journey, but it started with you just wanting to do more teaching, writing, performing
0: yeah stuff yeah i just thought like look i I will buy the medallion for the yellow cab and i'll drive it you know wednesday nights i'll do a show i'll teach on sunday i'll teach on monday and then you guys can use the medallion on other nights Mm
1: -hmm. so
0: um and again i I i felt because i didn't really need the money at the time because of the gigs i was getting that my writing for snl class could subsidize the whole space Like me teaching one writing for SNL, which it used to sell out 15 people every session um, and my improv class. And if I wasn't going to take anything, that would be my kind of donation to the community. Mm -hmm. I would teach and, uh, and then that would cover the cost of the space but hmm. there's so much stuff that people don't tell you in terms of insurance is a grand a month and oh yeah con right. edison's going to be this and then there's Verizon right. Uh, right. and it's still it just it, it never ends and so what you think you need to run it is not what you need you need minimum 3 to 4x of rent So if your rent is, let's just say, for argument's sake, five, you need minimum fifteen to twenty to break even before you're even able to take anything. Are you
1: glad you didn't know any of this stuff before you jumped in? Oh, absolutely. Do you think if had you known it, you would have just stuck to improvising and teaching for someone else?
0: If I would have known any of it, I would have stayed in a loincloth in a a (laughs) studio apartment poop in my pants if anybody had told you if people told you what getting having you know being in a relationship is having kids is starting a business yeah. is and they showed yeah. you you know with like that um that uh what's that movie Christopher Walken the dead zone where he laid hands on mm-hmm. somebody and they could or, mm-hmm. or, or powder powder you know um the movie powder where like yeah the guy could put his hand on you and you could feel what it was like for that deer to die you know mm-hmm. um I don't think anybody would do anything If someone could just be like, you'd be like, ha ha! ha, ha, no, you know, um, because that's
1: the role of the theater TV movie artist is to give those lessons to people to show them what it's like to be a dying deer. So they know how to live their lives.
0: Well, I think it's empathy. Yeah, I mean to be able to have a sense of what does that deer feel as it's dying—that it is a creature—and you know, I think you know that's why the Native Americans have such a a respect for the animal and didn't understand really why, you know, um, the guys in the Wild West were just shooting buffalo off the back of a train driving by. You know. Yeah. When they were using every bit of the kill, they're like, "Look, we kill buffalo too, but we use every bit of the kill." You yep. know, um, but I, yeah, I mean, look, I still like, you know, but it's, you get so well, deep what do you What it.
1: do you think your job is like as, outside of the, you know, creative uh, space where community can grow? Like as a performer writer, do you see yourself having any sort of responsibility for what you put in the world?
0: Well, I mean, I wanna do stuff that makes me laugh, that I'm interested in. You know, I've probably to some degree have been laden laden too much with the thought of, am am I making people think or just making them laugh, where I should just worry Mm. about making them laugh, you know, but I've always tried to say, well, let's make people laugh and think, you know, at at Second City, the idea was we're doing social and political satire. We're giving them a little bit of sugar to make the medicine go down, but we still have something to say, but we're not preachers or politicians, we're comedians, and we want to make you laugh, and then maybe you think about this, you know, right, Um, right.
1: Has that evolved? Because you're, you're, one of your solo shows, Word of Mouth, which had a very successful run at the UCB and also went to the Aspen Comedy Festival, in that show, you, um, there was a, just a bit where you talked about how they would trap these monkeys, they would put some nuts and berries in a hole, the monkey would put their hand in the hole, grab the nuts and berries, and then they couldn't get their fist out. And they'd be stuck there, and they'd be killed by hunters. That really, you know, as a young-ish theater artist and performer, that really hit me. That show was a great show. Um, And, uh, you know, you had this look in your eyes to the audience. It was really profound in that way of like, you really asked a question to the audience. It's like a Bertolt Brecht moment. You really said, what are your nuts and berries? You're basically saying to the audience, You may be wasting your life. You may be trapped by forces you don't understand are out there. And it it struck me two ways. One, as a person, like, oh my God, what are my nuts and berries? What am I reaching for? Do I really need another PlayStation? But it's also as a theater artist, it woke up in me, like, you just need to say it. Don't hint at it, don't dance around it, don't just, you know, put put on a song and dance, having phony arguments. But like, you really need to say something that impacts people, do you see yourself as as being in a unique place to sort of wake people up? Is that important to you, or is it just something that happens?
0: Well, I mean, I think it's more about waking myself up. So me doing that monologue was just, you know, things I'd read, things I'd heard, stories I'd read, and putting together the piece where there was three monkey stories and this cool monkey mask that I'd found, and wanting to tell these stories in some kind of still comedic way but really the nuts and berries part of like you know what are your nuts and berries you know um was to myself Mm. you know sure i want to make people laugh first and foremost you know i mean if you can't make them laugh then the other stuff for what we do or what i do you know i would have become a politician i'd have become a preacher i'd have become you know a different kind of person You know, but I like making people laugh, but I also like making people think. And so that's why even with the nuts and berries, at the end of it, I would say, you know, I would tell the story of the hole and the monkeys and your fist is caught in there. And then they'd walk up to you and the monkey is going crazy, you know, and realizes what's happening. A hunter with a gun is walking up to them. Even then, they still don't know to let go. Just release the fist and they'll be able to run away. And so the hunter walks up to them, shoots him in the head, cuts off the hand, and just carries off the carcass. And then I'd say, what are your nuts and berries? Cigarettes, internet, alcohol, actual nuts and berries, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good joke. So, Come back to actual nuts and berries. Right. So I have to end it with a joke. And I still have people who text me throughout the years who go, quote, actual nuts and berries, you know. (laughs) Because- How did
1: you learn how to tell a joke?
0: I don't know if I, you know, I remember being young and, you know, my parents would have dinner parties and there were other doctors at these dinner parties who were funny. And also it's a time before being PC. So, you know, like I remember one doctor was um, an Indian doctor and um, they had this joke where this guy asked these two Indian guys who worked in a restaurant uh they said how old are you and your brother who work here? he goes i am dirty and my brother is dirty too <laughs> and i was like what <laughs> wait what what, what happened <laughs> it's because they were saying i'm 30 and my brother is 32 yeah. but because of the yeah. accent there was this joke so i was like huh Wow, that's interesting. And then little jokes out here and there, and then you know television and and then just little by little, you realize, oh, there is a formula to it. If I do two real ones, right, I get to say, mm-hmm. what are your actual what are your nuts and berries? And then you just choose depending on the night if it's going to be cigarettes, internet, whatever. And then it ends with actual nuts and berries because you people think they're all they're caught up in what you're saying. they're like, oh, this is wow. And then it's laughter is the sound of surprise. So if I just kept going, you know, cigarettes, tobacco, internet, bacon, you know, it's just like, eventually you're going to have to turn around and reveal something that is funny. And that's just, you know, kind of luck. Like coming up with Hmm. actual nuts and berries is just the rehearsal process and, you know, putting a puzzle together. And then you just Mm -hmm. have these moments of grace where you say something and it's like you still know, like I still know I could get up and, you know, do that bit and if people haven't heard it um you know i I believe that actual nuts and berries will still get a laugh you know oh yeah um and then there was two other monkey stories i got to tell along with that and it was probably you know a three to four minute piece and then realizing that when you look at an album you know and you look at like you know here's this you know the beatles white album you know the songs are basically like between two and three and a half four minutes so the pieces i was putting together were you know under you know four minutes three minute pieces
1: so when you're working on a show like that you're not thinking of the whole picture you're just trying to make discoveries and then find connections
0: yeah i mean i think you're working on the bits like each thing in and of itself is a song that is a certain length and then you want to make sure because again you know most of us don't have the luxury of like i'm going to work on a whole show it's like during that mm-hmm. period of time, you would go to an open mic. And at that open mic, you would try one bit. I would try, you know, the monkey monologue or I would mm-hmm. go there and I would try this monologue. And then once it worked, then you were like, OK, there's something here. It got laughs. It's working. Each time you do it, you were kind of, you know, um, changing the tire on a moving vehicle. You know, Hmm. and then it gets to a place where you've kind of got it, where it's not perfect. You know, it's, you know, and and again, for what we do, we're not like opera singers that have to be pitch perfect and people will notice, you know, some little flaw in your singing or playing of the piano. We can miss a lot of notes and it's still, they get it. And we can comment on, oh, that didn't work. And they get it. It's a very forgiving art form.
1: What are, what are your nuts and berries?
0: My nuts and berries right now are um, bricks and mortar spaces that have been uh, uh, closed and all the art at those spaces um, and all the stuff. It's like at one point when it ended, I was like, I own 10 pianos. That's crazy.
1: Yeah. And the chairs, you sent all the chairs to Africa.
0: Not all, but when I was losing Simple Studios, um, um, I was going through a, a real cognitive dissonance. And so I wanted to try to get everything into the right hands. So I was like going downstairs to all the neighbors under Simple and saying, Mm -hmm. do you guys need any tables? Do you need any chairs? Do you guys need any? I was trying to give away the stuff uh, Mm -hmm. because materials for the arts is closed. That's where we normally would have donated everything arts related. And this gentleman named Haji at the store underneath Simple said, yeah, well, I'll, t- I'll take these chairs. I have a starting a hospital in Africa, an opital, opital. I want to I put these in the waiting room in the opital in Af- Africa. And I was like, where? He's like, Togo, Togo, Africa. I was like, you're going to get these chairs to Africa? I was like, how? He's like, we get container, a cargo container, 6,000 for one container. and We all share. and We send it there. And then my relatives will pick it up. I said, okay. He's like, how much? And I was like, are you seriously going to send these chairs to Africa? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to up I was like, okay, if you send these chairs to Africa and you send me a picture when they get there, you don't owe me any money. He goes, really? I was like, yeah, take them. That's a better story than any kind of $5 a chair I could get. Yeah. And so it's amazing. about a month ago, he, you know, somewhere around that, he came to me and he showed me the picture and there they were, the second gen, uh, chairs of the pit. Loft, which became chairs at Simple Studios when the pit loft got new chairs. Um, and then they went to Africa, and that's the trickle down Ronald Reagan was talking about. Mm-hmm. He didn't know how to explain, he was right. It. He didn't know how he to explain right. what that means. It means, look, you started a theater, you went down to Kmart, and you bought 50 chairs for nine dollars each because you told them you were starting a new theater. They gave you a manager's discount instead of ten, a chair they sold to you for nine. All right. Those chairs go to Simple Studios. Then another set of chairs get bought by BizChair.com, and you put those into the new pit loft, You know, and now those same chairs are in a waiting room in Africa, Togu. Huh? Yeah, and he said that's some, amazing. That's that, absolutely amazing. He said I could go visit someday. So I mean, again, in the movie of it, in the Shawshank Redemption movie of it, someday I go to Togu when he's there, and yeah, I sit, and I that's the, the ending. That's the ending. Yeah. It's a
1: nice sunset. You're walking into it, and you're, you say, all right, everybody, circle up, make eye contact with each other. Let's breathe in, and that slowly fades as everyone starts Zip Zip up. So one of the obsessions of this podcast is comparing Paris in the 20s to Chicago in the 90s. You were in Chicago in the nineties doing improv sketch, etc. Do you ever get nostalgic for Chicago in the nineties? Do you ever look back with that sort of fuzzy dreamlike quality that you were part of a sort of a magical time in the world of improv and sketch?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I do, but I also have you know, realized while I was there, because I had had other golden times, a few in my life, you know, one was at Carolina from 85 to 90, and the fraternity I was in, the people I knew Mm -hmm. there, I knew like, oh, this is a magical time. And, you know, my parents would be like, college is gonna be the best four to five years of your life, Ali, (laughs) you know? yeah. So, uh, you know, when I was in Chicago, I was like, oh my God, these people are really, really talented and nice people, you know? And so, you know, when I got to Chicago I had read this article in GQ about the main stage cast of The Gods Must Be Lazy and Dell Directing, and they did a makeover of the cast, and it was Pasquese and Farley and Meadows and O'Malley and Joe Liss. Wow. um, So I was like, I already knew about Chicago and understood kind of what it was, and I knew Belushi had come out of Second City, and I knew uh, Gilda Radner and Farley, and I I mean, I knew about it. And so being there, I just... uh, you know, it it was magical because again, you don't have any kids, you don't have any partner at the time. You're just, you know, you, you're okay with two Big Macs for $2. You get to walk to Second City every night and see, you know, six nights a week improv sets. And then somehow you start taking classes and they think you're good enough to be on a house team. And then you're performing, you know, every Thursday, twice on Friday, twice on Saturday. And, You know, I was there for, I wasn't there for Farley's last night at Second City, but I was there for Tim Meadows last night. And I was there for Mm. a lot of last night's, you know, Colbert's last night and, you know, uh, Danello's and Sedera's and, you know, and just, um, you just knew how talented and funny they were. And I I, I guess I never quite thought, I I thought I was good enough to be able to walk in those halls and be a part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't know if I ever, you know, I just felt very lucky that at each point I had just enough in the Donkey Kong game of life to be able to, you know, get on a house team at IO, to get into Turco, to get into ETC, to get into SNL and you know, August of 99. It's just been just these little lucky bifurcation points that just was enough to get me there for as long as I needed to be there, you know, to be able to go to the next place. But yeah, I mean, I mean Chicago in the 90s, I mean, and again, the people I got to work with, like when I went into my touring company cast, um, it was Dave Keckner, Matt Dwyer, you know, um, and I went in there for, I can't remember who left so that I went into that cast, you know, but Kevin Dorff, you know, Stephanie Weir was one of my students mm. at IO, Rachel Dratch and I were on the same team, Tina and Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. You know, we were in the same touring company, Rich Tellerico, Bill Cott, Rachel Hamilton. I mean, and then the people who were on the stages at the time, you know, you know, Pasquese, yeah. O'Malley, Ian Gomez, you know, uh, Neavar I mean, it's just like, when I look back at it and I just yeah. think about it. And again, these people, I mean, I would see Colbert coming back from Northwest, you know, in, in a van, you know, yeah. and Steve yeah. Carell. And, you know, it's just like the amount of people... And what they were doing, and really just kind of doing it at like, uh, they're where are they going? They're driving forty five minutes to go to a place called Northwest, yeah, <laughs> to do a show in the suburbs in Schaumburg. Yeah,
1: crazy, you know, right?
0: You know, it's like, what are they doing? Oh, that's a touring company. They just went, uh, they just went out west for three weeks to do shows at ski resorts.
1: Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> but that was like a goal. That was like, oh my god.
0: That would now, be amazing to the go most, out there. The most coveted tour. We got to do it two years in a row. We got to do the ski tour. And wow. Second City gave me the chance to go to, you know, I went to Waco to see the compound because of Second City because we were close enough to it. You know, I got a wow. chance to go to Dealey Plaza where Kennedy was assassinated because of Second City, you know. But again, you know, it they, they put us in a van for three days to travel right. out <laughs> there with no pay right. and $25 yeah. a day per diem. <laughs> And there but, were
1: airplanes at the time.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> they could have, but, um, yeah. you know, but again, it's, it's just the way they had done it. And, you know, there was, you know, and when I got hired, this guy came up to me, I think his name's Brandon, Brandon Johnson. He said, Hey man, my name is Brandon. I go, Hey, how you doing? Ali goes, so you're the one I go, what are you talking about? He's like, I was number two. They said 500 people auditioned for one spot and you got it. And I was like, wow. Oh, okay. You know? And again, it's just, That's it's huge. It's luck. It's, you know, somebody has seen you, you've been working, they know you, a director goes to bat for you. And at that time, I think Tom Giannis, you know, went to bat for me, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it just becomes a thing where people talk about you and they know about you and you think it's bigger than it is. But Chicago, the windy city, is called that not because of the actual wind. It's only number 12 in the country in terms of wind. It's because of the gossip, how quickly gossip went through the town. So if you got to Chicago, a lot of blowharts, blow but if you got there and you could do something in the world of improv, word got out.
1: You know? Yeah, people knew.
0: People knew. They they knew pretty quickly. They heard about you. They wanted to play with you. And that's the thing. When they saw you could do something, it wasn't like they were um, worried about it. They wanted to play with you. You know, mm. and, that, and that's when mm. I tell people, I say, be the kind of improviser other people want to play with. Be the kind of improviser you want to play with. Do you want to get up on stage and fake fight with people and argue and interrupt and, you know, say no to stuff? No, be someone to be a good improviser, be a good friend.
1: So what do you think is next for improv? How Do you have a vision for what it would be like in the future? Either something you've always wanted to have happen or just a prediction based on the, the trends?
0: Well, I think, you know, there's this... Um, this is great book by John Williams called Butcher's Crossing, where this young man goes out west looking for an adventure, and he goes out on this uh, buffalo hunt. And they go out, and it becomes this nightmare where they get stuck in the winter of Colorado, and they end up do getting the buffaloes and all these pelts. And by the time they come back to town, the whole wearing buffalo coats is over. <laughs> so <laughs> nobody wants their buffalo coats And so even in Chapel Hill, when I went there, by the time we finished and opened and got it done with all the challenges and everything that was going on with cancel culture and, you know, the town of Chapel Hill and permits and fees and violations and construction issues and over renovation, it felt like the improv comedy boom had was kind of done, you know, and it felt like stand up was kind of the new thing. Mm -hmm. And I think improv to some degree, too, it's like, look, UCB spaces are gone. I don't know if the magnet's going to come back. I don't know if our spaces are going to be able to survive. I don't know who's going to have spaces. I know the stand-up clubs, they have a different model. They will either be new ones or come out the other side because I think it's just going to, you know, they say, like, you know, if you want to go fast, go by yourself. If you want to go yeah. far, go with others. And I think once this is done, people are want to, are going to want to go fast. Yeah. They're they're not going to want to go far anymore. They're going to be like, "I want to, how fast can I get back on track um, and and do this." And so
1: Well, I do know. You mentioned 9/11 earlier. I do know from living through 9/11 that like people are going to want to go out and laugh when this is all over. Now, it won't be like you know, nine eleven faded pretty quickly, right? Once you didn't smell the smoke anymore and the mayor was saying go out and spend all your money, we knew we can go out. This this won't be the same. It'll be a slow, you know, reopening. But I know at some point people are gonna want to get out there and start laughing at things.
0: I, I absolutely believe that's true. I just think, you know, I don't know if in twenty twenty one any space is gonna be at hundred percent occupancy. Probably not and you know for what we did at the uh, the the larger pit on 24th I mean we were mm-hmm. running we were running seven nights a week four shows a floor almost every day and it was still a challenge because yeah. of all the costs to do it yeah so I, I don't I don't see a world where you know even in Broadway every other seat empty wouldn't work financially it would not, now, no. I, th- I think what's going to happen on Broadway when, you know, something like a Hamilton comes back and they're going to try every other seat empty, but every seat's $1,000, I think you're going to see that there's a level of wealth in this country that people hadn't even imagined mm. of, of enough people going, I'll pay a grand to sit and watch Hamilton, you know, yeah, with every other seat empty. Well, I'll pay 1500 you know, so I think yeah. people would be like, oh, my God. Whoa. It's just like the airlines where they're like, we have to just give you charge for your bags just for a little while, $25. And then yeah. they're like, Oh, people are paying it. And now yeah. it's, you know, $600 million a year in airlines, just, you know, just in bags. It's like, well, what happened? Well, you guys used to just do it for free.
1: <laughs> yeah. I I would just add it to my ticket price. Right. So I don't even notice it because I'm sure I was paying that before anyway. Right. You mentioned Blue Velveeta. Yeah. Who else did you see in in your early times coming up, or even more recently that you thought I'm looking at
0: greatness? Well, I mean, I think uh, jazz Freddie, all those people who did jazz Freddie, you know Pete Gardner, uh, Teresa Mulligan, Miriam, Miriam Stack, tolan. Miriam tolan mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, all those people who were part of Jazz Freddy to me was incredible improvisation. We used to do our shows at I.O. Friday and Saturday night, I believe. And then we would race over there to try to watch them at um, Live Bait, I think they were performing mm-hmm. at. Um, you know, T.J. and Dave, what they were doing.
1: Who was your favorite teacher when you were coming up as a, as a young student?
0: Mm, well, look, I mean, the improv teachers that I had along the way, you know, were basically I took one class with Sharna. And then when I got to IO, it was Sharna and Dell. That's it. So you took mm-hmm. level one with Sharna, she taught every level one and then Dell, and then you just kept studying with Dell in the same way you studied with an acting teacher. So I, I studied with Marianne Ann Thebus in Chicago at the Center Theater, and Wynne Handman in New York City, and then Sharna and Dell. And again, I'm someone who I feel like, you know, I can do this, and I have no fear of stepping on stage with any person and being able to play because I know listen and react, make them look good, do some object work, you know, make statements, not questions, if you get into an argument, figure out what it's about. You know, so I have enough of the tools that are in me that I can, I can do it, right? Mm-hmm. But all those things that I rattled off were things that I just, at some point was like, I need to put together a system for myself because I'm mm-hmm. just kind of winging it. And sometimes it's working and sometimes it's not. So, you know, I always say like, you know, in my life, I was a baseball player before I was a tennis player, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was a tennis player before I was a photographer. And then I was a, you know, improviser before I was an actor, you know, so these things came in a way where math was also a part of my, you know, younger life. And I was like, there's got to be a math to this. What are people doing, whether they know Mm -hmm. it or not, that works Mm -hmm. more often than not? You know, and so I would just listen and my teachers were all the people I performed with, I think, and, you know, talking about improv afterwards and, you know, uh, inside baseball, inside improv and having conversations and, um, you know, and to some degree, I regret that I didn't take more improv classes because it came so quickly from having taken a class to all of a sudden being put on a house team. And then mm-hmm. the ego of youth sets in where you don't mm-hmm. take classes because you're like, I'm already on a house team or I'm in Second City. Yeah. And, and pretty you just,
1: soon you're coaching groups and teaching right. yourself and right. you're like, I'm the teacher now.
0: Right. And so you cheat yourself out of a lot of opportunities to put yourself in a student situation. Um, right. But, you know, those things I think were, you know, things I had... Heard throughout the thirty years, and you know, and to some degree, I, you know, I'd been working on a book about improv called "Improv Your Life," and so I put together those chapters of like what is it that works and what doesn't work. Um, but I would say, you know, everybody I ever, you know, in the audience is your best teacher. You know, yeah. Um, well, yeah. they'll tell you right exactly. away. It's like, oh, your fake fighting is not funny to us. You know, right? Um, right. We're not laughing and we're not making any noise, and it's right. like. You just kind of know as, a, as an actor and improviser what what works more often than not. And um, right.
1: it takes- And that takes getting on stage yeah. and, and, and having enough stage time that you, you can get that feedback.
0: No doubt, no doubt.
1: All right, so you, you wrote for Saturday Night Live. That's huge. You actually got paid to write for TV. You've been a dramatic actor on TV shows, movies. You've done comedy shows and movies you've done you've performed with some of the best comedy people contemporary comedy people you know in the culture people that defined comedy what's left on the list is there anything that you're like i haven't done that yet and i want to get to it
0: well there's a piece of me in this time where i'm like uh i don't and again it's the voices in your head where it's like uh should i have been doing stand-up comedy for the past 30 years did I hmm. spend my time doing improv where I should have been doing stand up because I preferred to be around other people? I like camaraderie. Mm-hmm. I like community. I was too afraid to get up there by myself. I didn't want to go to open, you know, so I think post and again I'm trying to, you know, I, I do my own podcast right now where I interview people, you know, uh, is this a bad time to talk? Where I've done like twenty six of those. I
1: <laughs> You just call people randomly. Yeah,
0: I just coast. this is a bad and time start to talk. <laughs> Um, so, you know, and I also, you know, was a big fan of Larry King and Howard Stern. So I'm like, is there a life for me talking to people in a mic? And, mm. you know, is there a world like that? I enjoy doing it like this to me. I can't believe how much time has flown by. I enjoy talking to you always. We've always had an easy friendship. Um, stand up, you know, I, I gotta, I want to be able to try that more digital stuff. Um, I want to write books, you know, the kind of books you'd read when you go take a poop poop house publications. Our goal is just poop house publications. Our goal is very simple. We just want to get the phone out of your hand. That's all we want to do. We want to make books fonts a little bigger sentences are shorter, paragraphs are tight. Our goal at Poop House is just to simply get the phone out of your hand while you're pooping and get a book back in your hand, right?
1: Is it spelled P-O-O-P or like P-H-U-P-E with an umlaut over the U? Uh,
0: whatever's funnier, it was P-O-O-P, but I'm happy with your rewrite, you know, because to me, ultimately, it's always what's funnier. Whether I came up yeah. with it or not, it's just like, What's funnier? And again, you can't account for people's tastes, so I may hear something and go, ah, "I like poop house better." And then it's yeah. like you say your thing. I'm like, all right, let me see what it looks like on paper. Um, but you know, pooping out these books, doing more of these podcasts, you know, figuring out how to become, you know, a digital nomad. I also enjoy mm-hmm. traveling. I want to travel and teach the way you've done, you know. I mm-hmm. want to go to the Copenhagen, you know, improv festival. I want to see the world. I uh yeah. I want to have adventure, you know, and you know, what's happening right now with the spaces, you know, there's a piece of me that knows like I never I wouldn't have had the courage to let go of five spaces. Right. I would have kept running them because they benefited 90% of the people. Ten percent wanna tear you down. They want to destroy you. They want to financially kill you so you cannot make a living for your family and yourself for whatever reason, you know. Um, But 90%, I still get texts of, hey, man, just thinking of you. Thank you for all you did. I'm like, oh, you're welcome, you know. And uh, even when I see like a post yesterday where I see like, you know, Dana and Giancarlo got engaged and got married. I'm like, okay, if the pit all goes away, they met at the pit, you know. Yeah. So there's enough. And you, you and your wife. And, uh, you know, you and Sasha. We literally
1: met, we met on stage. Right. In a show.
0: That's right. A dating game show (laughs) that Jen Nails and I put together just because we needed shows. So those are, and my sister, my sister met her uh, partner, David. And I, you know, have nephew, Max, because of the pit. So as these spaces, you know, whatever ends up happening to them, and I don't know. And again, it's approaching a year. being shut down and you know all these businesses that we run were like you know right out of college businesses because they're month to month our chip Mm -hmm. stack wasn't like we got all this money sitting around you know i don't know and you know at a certain point it's like not only do i not know i don't know when we'll be allowed to do what we once did to generate the revenues we did rent aside you know yeah you yeah. just, you still got Con Ed. You still got Verizon. You still got insurance companies. You still got, you know, all these other entities that are not contingent on how many uh, how much you bring in.
1: Right. And, Is your strategy right now just to sort of wait it out and be the first one back? Because you Magnet, UCB are gone. Yeah. Right?
0: I don't know if I have a strategy because, you know, I have three different landlords. And yeah. uh, I really, they're... I don't know. I, I don't know. I, you know, there's so much I don't know. Um, yeah.
1: Nobody knows. Nobody knows anything.
0: And so I don't. I mean, look, we have online classes. I'm still in New York City. I live in New York City. I don't plan to move. You know, unless I got a job somewhere doing some kind of acting. Mm-hmm. I plan to stay in New York City. I mean, it's my home. So. And I also believe, as the smoke settles, other spaces will become available. And, you know, I think the size of spaces that we had to some degree were just larger than we needed. So maybe in 2022, other spaces become available. Instead of having one giant place, we have two or three smaller ones or one or two small mm-hmm. ones. Or I may just be like, look, I did it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, you know, I like I said, I've enjoyed the online classes. We got the SNL scholarships. We were able to give 20 people scholarships in New York and North Carolina. And I meet with them once a month for them to go over there characters and impersonations and Mm -hmm. um i don't know i mean look i'm of a certain age the clock is ticking you know so i don't know how much more time i have left and you know it's you also got to be careful of chasing you know we're never going to be that place we were back in 2002 to 2010 with the people who came through Right, right. You know, it was an
1: amazing time. It was a yeah. it was a golden time yeah. here in the city.
0: I mean, you look at the people who came through. You know, it's like and what they've done in terms of their careers and the the collaborations that came out of that. And you know, when I see them on Instagram, I'm like, yeah, okay. Whether other people know, or whether they know, or whether you know, I know. You know, the people that came through and how I feel it benefited them. Yeah. Um, and and the people who got together and you know. Hopefully that'll last the test of time. But, you know, I don't really have a strategy because it's not up to me. There is so much I can't control in terms of landlords. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people who have not gotten the memo that we're all in this together, you know? <laughs> right, right. Con Edison, yeah. Verizon, Nuco Gas, Conica Minolta Printers, insurance yeah. companies didn't get the memo that we're all in this together. Right. So right. it
1: hasn't been a warlike posture you know, where we're facing a common enemy. And that's a, that's a huge failing.
0: Yeah. And so say what
1: you want about George W. Bush and the corruption of his administration and the failed wars. They worked very hard to get everybody on the same page. That was my political minute. That was the
0: political minute. Nice political minute with Kevin Scott. (laughs) Um, so I don't know if I have a strategy. Uh, look, I look, I, look. I all I'd love to be able to work with you. And you know, when I see that drone, I'm like, how can we make something with a drone? How can Kevin yeah. and I collaborate? How can Kevin be yeah. on one side of the camera telling me what to say and how to say it? You know, I I think I. Do you idea. think that
1: would ever happen? Do you think if I told you what to say, you would yeah, actually well, say it?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I'd do my best. I mean, we're shooting video. Yeah. it's not like it's film. <laughs> you know? True, you know? <laughs> true, true. We
1: get three or four takes. Right.
0: Out. I mean, when I was doing film, it's like yeah, everything counted, and it was yeah. one, two, three <laughs> takes tops, and let's get this yeah. and show up to set memorized and ready to go. But in video, you're like, it's a please. red. It's like, okay. all day. I kind of know my lines. And, you know, I'm kind of, let's feel <laughs> it out. And, you know, but yeah, I would like to make, you know, I, I still want to collaborate and work with people. I still want to put content out there, you know. And again, I just... I realize I'm not going to get to all my ideas, so how do I, you know, take some of the ideas that I have and package them in different ways so that the idea is out there for other people who are like, you know what, this is a good idea. I know he's doing a bit, but I'll turn this into a business, (laughs) you know. Exactly.
1: All great businesses start out as a bit.
0: Yeah, and I mean, that's, you know, what the pit was a bit. You know to begin with one of these days i'm gonna you know, start my own theater you know after all the way of this one of these days one of these days and you know people yeah. you know it's like the people you know who drank at mcmanus we used to just be like one of these days we're gonna one of these days and then you know you realize one day is today and someone right. has got to be like i will sign my name on the lease and that's essentially what my purpose was they needed a signature they needed a social security number to attach to these leases and loans and bank accounts, and that's what I could provide. I I was like, all right, I will do this so other people can do it, and then in return, I'll be able to teach a little, perform a little, and you know, and also do some you know architecture and design, and you know, pay for artists. Like the amount of art that Asher was able to create at the different locations is yeah. are my nuts and berries. Because I'm yeah. like, I got to, I'm beholden to do something with this art. I can't just let it, you know, it's a collection. There's 130 gold icons at the pit, you know? So, yeah, I mean, when this all, I mean, I'd love to get back out there in front of a live audience. I'd like to be able to, you know, do stand up. I'd like to be able to do solo show stuff, maybe improv under a more, you know, controlled environment. Cause I still love improvising, but I think improv too is, you know, it's a tool and, you know i think tj and dave showed us as far as you can take it they took it to broadway you know um, yeah but i think you know it, is, content is that a
1: goal you'd want to take a a show a stage show to like that level
0: yeah why or, not i'd love to be able to i just have to figure out what is that you know and you can't yeah. like like i was thinking i have thought a lot about during this pandemic in terms of like you can't control or choose your passions. Otherwise, I would have opened up a pizza shop with a bike shop inside. You know, mm-hmm. I'd have been like, well, mm-hmm. this is the business. If I had a bike shop, because they're killing yep. it. Rides
1: and slices. That's Rides it. and
0: slices. That's it. I mean, I do have this idea called birthday pizza. It's essentially we sell pizzas for birthday parties. Pepperoni, mm-hmm. cheese, and then a Nutella pizza, right? And mm. I, I know, I know birthday pizza would kill it. I have no doubt if you had a great cheese pizza a great pepperoni pizza and then a great sweet pizza but do i want to be running birthday pizza and being like jesus where's the nutella delivery how come the bananas are all going bad have you looked at the fruit flies on these bananas Mm -hmm. you know i just i'm gonna you like kind of
1: coming up with the idea
0: right i like coming up with the idea the concept the you know and then having someone who's like hey man i know you think this is a joke but I know how to do pizza, and I will do birthday pizza. And here's five percent or ten percent of it, or whatever. But I just, you know, the different departments of New York City to deal with are very challenging. You know, yeah, you know, the different Department of Health, Department of Building, and they're all doing their job. You know, yeah, but it's challenging. You know, we got shut down at Pioneers for six days because of fruit flies, and that almost that almost destroyed us. I had to take a megabus back at uh, 8 p.m. at night to get here at 8 in the morning to deal with it from Chapel Hill. Um, but it's all like, like I said, it's all first world yeah. woes and champagne problems that I got. And even right now, my my challenges are first world. You know, yeah. I don't have third world yeah. challenges. I have access to a roof over my head. I have water. I have a bathroom. I have access to food. You know, um, I'm just losing I guess a sense of identity, a sense of purpose, uh, Mm -hmm. of who I was, of who am I gonna be? How can I help? Mm -hmm. But I'm not like losing, I haven't, I'm not on a lung machine, you know? I'm not on a, I'm not being intubated. You know, I don't have a family member I'm saying goodbye to through a window, you know? I'm just like, I'm losing comedy theaters, you know? and yeah, And it's also, it's not happening to me. Yeah, it's not, it's not happening. The idea I've had right. is a show idea to travel with called You're Not Alone, you know, uh, where it's basically, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who think they're alone, right? They're the only ones who lost a job, yeah. a business, you know, lost a sense of purpose, lost their money, lost who they were, you know, and they probably think they're alone, you know, and I just, you know, it's still got to be funny and it still has to have a point.
1: Yeah, but you would just like, just have people raise their hand if they're under a certain condition and then you'll... Have them look at each other? Yeah. A lot of right eye to right eye
0: contact, mirror exercises. (laughs) 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 No, I mean, it'd still be a show. I'm not asking Uh, for audience participation necessarily, (laughs) but I'm just, you know, it's still a solo show. It's got a beginning, middle and end. It's ideally under an hour, you know, 50, 55 minutes. Cause at the end of the day, we are all competing with the phone, you know? people have this device, and if you're up there doing a show or anything, and people start thinking about that device in their pocket, it's over, you know? And so, yeah,
1: the devices are, um, you know, it's a double-edged sword. It's, uh, it's great that people can communicate and grandmas can look at, you know, grandchildren's photos in an instant and all that stuff, but it also leads to the, the cancel culture and it leads to people storming the Capitol. It's, uh, we've kind of unleashed a dragon we can't put back in the box. This has been the political minute with
0: Kevin Scott. Um, yeah, I mean, look, there's, it, it was going to happen. There's no way around it. But as I try to tell my daughters, look, is it a tool or a toy? And they're like, what about you? You use it as a toy. I'm like, yes, but I'm trying to use it as a tool. Um, but yeah. you know, I think when we get back out there, uh, in front of people, we can't forget that for at least the past who knows how many months when this finally allows people to be in front of other people on a stage that they've got more used to that light box in their pocket than you, that that gives them comfort mm-hmm. now, not you. So when they go see mm-hmm. someone up on stage, it's like, I mean, when that first starts happening, it better be good, you know? Um, It better be something to, you know, leave the house for, get a vaccination for, you know, where I mean, because I I don't even know how they're going to do it in 2021 where without masks.
1: I don't think people are going to be laughing with masks on. Chappelle did his shows last summer, you know, outside and socially distanced. So we'll have to do stuff like that. But interior You know, the the theater we're used to is still a few years away.
0: Yeah. And it makes me think of also like, I don't know if you saw the 32 short films by Glenn Gould. I saw about 28 of them. Right. Well, there was one in there where it's like a five minute short film and he's on his knees. He's got his elbows and arms in an ice bath, in a sink, in a green room, dressing room. And a guy Mm -hmm. comes in there after like four minutes of this. It's a silent scene. And he's like, five minutes, Mr. Gould. And then underneath it just said the last time Glenn Gould performed live. <laughs> you know. Mm. After that it was all studio. It was just like I'm done with performing live. I'm going to, you know, just record my music and that'll be my life. And so, you know, you know, I walked away from this at various points in my life where I'm like, okay, I left Second City that first time and I'm done. I'm not going to perform. And it lasted almost a year and then I couldn't help it. It pulled me back mm. in. And that pulling me back in ended up taking me back to Chicago, which led me back to ETC because of Jeff Richmond throwing down the rope and putting me in that cast. And then that led to Saturday Night Live. You know, so in in, in many ways, if you're open to it, you you just, the path keeps pulling you along. And like I said, it didn't just happen to me. It happened to a lot of people. It's happening to people globally. But it is up to each of us to decide why it happened to me. You know, Mm. in in as much as... the whole global pandemic didn't happen. So I could do this, you know? Right. So I right. could get really in touch with my yoga. You know, it's like, no, <laughs> a half a million people didn't die. So you could do online yoga, <laughs> but it's great. It's great that you did. <laughs>
1: yeah. 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 So just like nine 11 didn't happen. So you could get on law and order to right. start the
0: pit. Right But I, I would be doing a disservice to discount that part of the story. you know right. were it not for 9/11, they wouldn't have cast this ripped from the headlines episode about a brown attorney uh, defending an American Taliban and I'm being in New York and had just done word of mouth and that show gave me the agents necessary to put me in the room where law and order was willing to you know audition me three or four times for the role. And that role gave me the money to start the pit. So it didn't happen so I could do it but I had to define for myself how I was going to use those events. And right. You know that's uh, that's part of the pit story, you know, the creation story of the pit is that because at the end of the day someone's got to put up money, put up a name, put up a social security number and sign leases and take out loans to do something, mm-hmm. you know. You're you're very humble about this though about you just
1: you're you know very outwardly humble guy about your, your contributions. But obviously, when people send you texts, or you see the Instagrams of people who've gone on to other things, I mean, you've got to have a certain you know feeling of pride or, or accomplishment that you've done more than just put down a social security number and sign a lease. I mean, part of it is that vision. Part of it is that idea. You had the idea. I'm going to create a space. We're going to do this thing. Community is going to build around it.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know if in the moment you're thinking about stuff like that, but, you know, all of us to some degree, all, uh, you know, is fear of death and fear of mortality and fear that, you know, at some point we're lost to history, which all of us will be, you know, Mm -hmm. um, for the most part. Uh, But, you know, like I said... Uh, Who knows in what Ancestry.com in 200 years they'll look back and say, oh, my great-great-grandparents met at this theater and then they had a baby named Winnie and then she did this and this, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there won't be – no one's going to be like, my name won't come into that. But, you know, the hope is that you've done certain number of things in your life that, you know – I mean, it's almost like that. I think it's Lilies of the Valley with Sidney Poitier, where he comes to that church and he builds that church for the nuns. And then Mm. the nuns keep discounting him. The lead nun keeps discounting that it's not you. The the God sent you to us. It's not about you, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And Sidney Poitier says, but I'm the one building the church, you know. And then this priest from a higher, like, church comes into town. And then he takes credit away from the nun and said... The God just put you here to build the church for me, but it's like this whole thing of like, look, we're all catalysts, right? Yeah. So you know, trying to be a catalyst for, okay, you know, but I also benefited too, you know. Yeah. It's unfortunate yeah. the times that we live in, and even
1: though it's win-win, that doesn't discount the, you know, the other people's win. You know what I'm trying to say? You're 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 humble again. You're like, ah, hey, whatever. Well, I'm just telling yeah, you, know. you know. Not everyone has the impulse to start it and and let the water boil around them. Just let it in. Just yeah. let it in. Take a moment okay. and let it
0: in. Don't defend, Ali. Don't defer. Don't <laughs> deflate. Let what Kevin said to you, let it in. It's okay if you cry on this Just podcast. It it's okay. It's all right. Just let it in. Just let you it did. in. You helped people, Ali.
1: Yeah, it's a hell of a thing. I'm just gonna say it objectively, (laughs) even though I'm a part of the pit, it's a hell of a thing that you've built and kept going. And just the amount of laughter alone, how many years, 12 years, 15 years, 22 years has it been? You know what I mean? Like, it's a lot of joy that has spread in the world.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, but like like even talking to you, like, I mean, you know, you, and the missus and your child to me you know that you know that's enough you know again yeah what did i am i some kind of no i i signed a lease on a space you know you're doing
1: it again you deflect i know i know (laughs) i know know. (laughs) i'm not asking you to take a victory lap i just i know that's part of your personality is to sort of i'm just a tenant i didn't build anything there's, there's, there's legitimate stuff you've built and, and lives have been changed for the better because you said yes and to whatever impulse or whatever bit at McManus many years ago. And there's no yeah. shame in looking back and saying, a lot of good has come out of this. You know, Even though there's a lot of headaches and you have to deal with the city and, and, and all of that, on the whole, the yin outweighs the yang. I don't know which is positive and negative in the yin yang and maybe they're equal opposites, but there's, as, there's, as much, there's more positive that's come out of you're just signing your name on a piece of paper than the overall negatives. Unfortunately, you've probably had to bear the brunt of a lot of the negative stuff.
0: Look, when I hear that someone's partner thought enough to think what's the best drone to get for them, right? <laughs> And finds yeah. the perfect tef- tech gift because maybe they met at a Valentine's show back in 2003 and he gets yeah. this sweet drone and that's he's already so doing drone footage that's like I'm thinking like whoa drone strike with Kevin Scott just <laughs> can I like can I narrate this how can I be a part of this this looks already like a professional level drone video then I think okay. Maybe that little Valentine's Day show you put together with Jen Nails back in 2003 or Sasha picked you out of three people and it led to Winnie. Okay. All right. Maybe that's enough. You know? Maybe that's yeah. what gives me a wonderful life. You know. Oh, good. I- I've benefited as much as anybody. It's just like it's hard right now because I'm still in the middle of it. I'm still in the middle yeah. of a lot of challenges yep. right now of, you know, entities and energies trying to still to some degree tear it apart you know because yeah. for some folks until it's gone and i'm gone there will still be you know they'll still have to think about it
1: all right so last question are you ready for the last question yeah, yeah. this is the last question on the
0: interview with ollie faranakian hosted by kevin scott <laughs> where's mccartney
1: what's your top improv? moment either you've witnessed or you've been a part of Hmm. sorry to spring such a heavy question on you
0: oh my gosh i mean there's so many i mean i can if I, i think about it i think of like kevin dorf in a scene coming down from what seemed to be the second floor of a home and i knew there wasn't a second floor but it looked like he was coming down a a flight of stairs and then he closed his robe and tied the robe and i was like young and i was like what did did he just tie the robe with the robe you know belt Mm -hmm. um you know uh i guess getting to be opposite people and in that moment improvising with them and being like wow these people are very good. And the, the names are just too like many. Who? There's so many to mention. It's like, I mean, there's, uh, it's, I mean, you know, the number of people I've had a chance to improvise opposite of and just, it, I would be listing names for like everyone I've said, you know, that I got a chance to play with. Um, yeah. I remember a great, I mean, again, even when The Family was doing our shows at I.O. five a week for like four years, there are a few shows that stand out and, you know, where they're Who's like
1: Who's in the cast of The Family?
0: The family was Adam McKay, Matt Besser, Ian Roberts, um, Miles Stroth, Neil Flynn, was the cast that was the six of us that played for about four years. But Rachel Dratch was also on that team. Pete Holney played for a little while with us. Laura Kraft played with us for a little while. But that six of us, and Rick Roman was a part of that. Rest in peace, he passed away. Um, But the six of us, we played essentially five times a week for, I believe, about four years, somewhere like that. Mm. It seemed like it, you know, from like 91 until 95, maybe. Is that possible? Maybe I'm, Yeah. uh, but I mean, that was an amazing time. The ETC cast I got to be a part of uh, at Second City was an amazing cast, an amazing time. You know, being at SNL in 99 and the people I got to be around for that, that minute of time, you know, I've been lucky, you know, so, and again, the pit, as you know, from 2002 to now, and all the people who've come through and hopefully, you know, made a, you know, no pun or pun intended pit stop for however long. And, you know, like I said, it's, it's always nice to see them yeah, uh, on the various platforms.
1: Ali Faranakian, thanks so much for making the time. Thank you for the conversation.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you too, man. I appreciate you doing this. I hope, you know, somebody benefits from it and uh, yeah. happy to do it anytime, Kev.
1: Let's do it. Let's do more.
0: All right. Best to your family.
1: Yeah, you too. I'll all see right. you when this is all over.
0: Yes, and no fake fighting.
1: No fake fighting.
0: No Keep it real. fake fighting. Keep it real, dog.
1: There you have it. That was my chat with Ali Faranakian. Always great to chat with Ali always got ideas I don't know if that potato chip one is going to take off but you know he's enthusiastic about it and sometimes that's all you need is a little enthusiasm if you like this podcast you can support it directly on our page on anchor.fm if you want to get in touch with us we're centraliaimprovisation at gmail.com we're also on the twitter's and the instagrams and the facebook's so we'll see you online until we see you in real life and thanks for listening to the centralia improvisational podcast